It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, fam. It's L. Joy Williams, your neighborhood political strategist and civics teacher. And I'm so glad that you made it to class this week. So what are we talking about this morning? This morning, we are talking about the current landscape, the political landscape that we are in at this moment, where we are in the midst, in the throes, if you will, of the midterm election cycle. And what happens during the midterm elections? Well, as you know, in listening to this show, there is an election every year. So it's not like we don't focus on this all the time. However, this particular midterm election cycle is important. Let's see, all of Congress is up. So that's four. 435 House seats that are up for election or re-election. And this is particularly important because, you know, this was a redistricting cycle. So some of these districts are new and there are new candidates. There are people running for re-election or people running in newly drawn seats. There have been lots of contentious issues regarding redistricting here in New York, Ohio and Texas and Florida. And it's really important that you just do a check-in and see are the people who have previously represented you going to be the same people running for election or re-election in those spaces. So 435 House seats are up. 34, I think it is, Senate seats, U.S. Senate seats. And we've seen some of those primaries just this past week that were decided. 36 governors, 30 lieutenant governors, 30 attorney generals. 27 secretary of states across the country. State legislatures, our state chambers are also up, as well as 34 mayoral elections, including there are judges and local elections as well. So this is a, when we talk about midterm elections being a big year, it is a big year and something we should pay attention to. Not to mention that there are ballot initiatives or questions They may be at the bottom of your ballot or you may have to flip the ballot over and vote on those. We're going to have a whole separate show on what ballot measures are to pay attention to in the next couple of weeks. But as we are in this midterm election cycle, those folks who are running for public office from the federal level all the way down to the local level, you'll begin to see their ads if you have not already. You know, you're going to get mail You're going to see these candidates out and about over the summer. They are coming to you or should be coming to you asking for your vote, either to elect them for the first time or to re-elect them. And something to keep in perspective is particularly if you are going to give your vote to someone who has been in office previously, how would you rate the job that they have done thus far? And as you know, I'm a firm believer in consistently speaking to those who represent you. And so the question is, how often do you speak to the people who represent you? When's the last time you sent them an email or a letter to the state, your state senator, your governor, to talk about some of the issues that are important to you? I can tell you for most people, they only communicate with their elected officials during an election cycle. They tell us what issues are important to them and what they will focus on if they win. These are the elected officials. And after the campaign is over and the candidate wins, we kind of barely engage with them again. You know, besides maybe in our own ecosystem or in our own text message group talking about, oh, Congress doesn't do this or, you know, these state legislative people are just crooks or things like that. So if our elected officials are supposed to represent our issues, our interests, our needs, how can they truly do that without hearing directly from us? Elected officials hear from people all the time, mainly lobbyists. (laughs) that are representing corporations and, you know, what we call special interests. Special interests are just people who care about a particular issue, you know, and some special interests may be reproductive justice, but it's also the coal industry. And sometimes they, they got more or triple 
<laughs> quadruple more money than, say, people in the reproductive justice space, right? They sometimes, you know, they have a higher priority. They should not, <laughs> but sometimes they have a higher priority on an elected official's list. But the most important voice they should hear from is you, who is their constituent. And look, you know, even using the phrase special interest can be like dynamite, right? Because people sometimes will say, you know, well, the special interests of the coal industry or the fishing industry, right, that they are different because some of them have more money behind them or more political advocacy behind them. But it doesn't take away from the fact that there's special interests that exist in every industry and in every group, right? So a lot of advocacy groups and special interest groups will publish what are called legislative report cards, where they grade legislators on the issues they represent. So, for instance, Planned Parenthood has a report card that's out that grades legislators on, you know, their commitment to reproductive justice based upon the votes that they have taken. Labor unions put out report cards based upon how legislators have voted in favor or against legislations that protect workers. I don't know if the coal industry puts out a report card, but they, they probably do. <laughs> lots of different groups. Uh, let's see. Legal Women Voters, like lots of different organizations. NAACP puts out a legislative scorecard based upon a racial justice or justice reform agenda. NRA puts out a legislative scorecard as well. So if a senator supports legislation affirming the Second Amendment, they may get an A rating from the NRA. Similarly, legislators who support the issues of civil rights and expanding and protecting voting rights, they'll get a high rating from the NAACP. But what about you? What's your grade? <laughs> What's your grade of the legislators who represent you? If you, the constituent, graded your representatives, what grade would you give them? And in this cycle that we're in, I am encouraging you for your civics homework to sit down with yourself, maybe with your family or even your neighborhood group or another smaller group within the district that you live in and think about what grade would you give your governor? What grade would you give your congressional member or your U.S. senator or your state legislator? What grade would you give Biden? <laughs> what grade would you give them based upon what is important to you? And I want to spend a few minutes talking about how you can develop that. Now, you don't need a fancy, like, you know, template to download. Let me tell you, I can often get in my own head and, like, start Googling and looking for other categories of, you know, doing this professional thing. Then I'm going to go to Canva and try to develop something pretty <laughs> to be able to put my grade so that I can email or tweet or put it in the post office box, put an actual hard copy letter to say Chuck Schumer and give him my grade for how he has represented me in the U.S. Senate. My representatives, so Chuck Schumer and Gillibrand are my U.S. senators. Hakeem Jeffries is my congressional person. There are also state legislators. My assembly person is new, was just elected in a recent special election. So, you know, she's going to have to run for the general election again. But, you know, there's very few things that she is taking action on thus far. So it's also important to know the context. But you know, I want to sit down first and lay out what are the categories and the issues that are important to me. And I and I really break it down into two buckets. First is their leadership in the district. And then also looking at the issues that I care about, sort of how they lead within the body they represent. So whether that's in the Senate, in Congress, in the House, whether that's in the state legislature, and then I also always do the overlay of context of the, the, the current moment 
or the landscape, if you will. So let's start first with their leadership in the district, right? So then I'm thinking about constituent services. If you're a congressional person, is your office responsive? Do you have competent staff that, you know, when you call the office, they're addressing issues that they're supposed to be addressing on a state legislature level? You know, do you have competent staff that, you know, the office is open, people are operating and things of that nature? How much money are you bringing or resources are you bringing back to the district? So really thinking about concretely, like what resources, not only money, because it can be funding on the state legislator, uh, state level, on the federal level, even on the local level, if you're talking about mayors and others, like how are they investing the resources that they are able to bring back to the district? And then are they attentive to local issues? So like, you know, yes, you know, you send your congressional member to D.C. to represent you there, but they can't be so disconnected from the district. So if things are happening in the district, are they responsive? Is their office responsive? Do you, you know, are, are they weighing in on what's happening locally, even though it may not be on their purview? Are they aware of it? How are they helping to address it? So that's like my bucket of their leadership in the district, right? How are they responsive to me as a constituent? How are they responsive to the needs of the neighborhoods and the communities in the district overall. Then I go to my issues, my legislative issues, right? And like what's happening in the body they represent, what's happening in the Senate, what's happening in the House, or if it's the state legislature, you know, what legislation have they introduced, right? Because particularly if you are in a member body, that's like the Senate, Congress, state legislature, city council, things of that nature, are they advocating for or introducing legislation that address the needs not only of our district and our community, but the larger whole, right? So are they introducing issues on voting rights? Are they addressing housing affordability, right? These questions are all things that are important to me or may be important to my community. So if they can't introduce the legislation or they haven't, right, what are their voice on the issues, right? So, you know, they may not be able to directly impact housing affordability, but are they talking about it? <laughs> you know, are they highlighting the issue? Are they using their basically bully pulpit to raise awareness of the issue based upon the needs of their constituents? So just because they're not able on the level that they are, whether it be Congress or state legislature or things of that nature, to actually introduce legislation to address the issue, are they using their voice to raise the con the concern that their constituents have on those issues? The other thing that's important is, you know, how are they supporting other legislation of others that might be beneficial? So maybe they didn't introduce the John Lewis voting rights bill in Congress, but are they a co-sponsor? Did they vote in favor of it or did they oppose it? If I am concerned about environmental justice or my district or my community is concerned about those things, where are their voice there? Have they voted on all the bills that are related to that? Are they co-sponsor on all of those bills? So those are things to consider, particularly their voice on that. And then as issues come up that sort of are really important, not only to our district, but to particular communities or that are national issues. For some, for some, I would ask the question, particularly on the congressional level, on the federal level, like where is their voice on reproductive justice? Where is their voice on the insurrection? Like were they giving people tours? Or do they stand out in opposition to what has hap what happened on January 6th, right? Are they holding people accountable? Are they using their position on our behalf, on their constituent behalf to address those issues? And then the last thing I do is this lens of the political landscape. So you remember back when President Obama was in office and we had Congress and, you know, the Republicans whole thing was like, we ain't getting nothing passed. We're going to block everything. So do I hold it against my congressional member that they were were unable to get something passed in that political landscape? I can't because it's not like they can do it on their own. You know, individual congressional members and senators can't introduce legislation and pass it on their own. Right. They have to take into account what landscape is happening. So the George Floyd Policing Act. Right. Like 
think critically on whether or not we had the numbers to actually get that passed. John Lewis voting rights bill. My congressional member definitely active on the thing. Heck, Chuck Schumer was like, I'm going to bring it to the floor. Now, could he pass it alone? No, (laughs) you know, because it is a member body. So I'm looking at the current landscape and like what is possible and what a person is able to do. And you can't hold things against people that they're not able to do on their own. Right. So it's important to have that context. That's why we have the conversations we do on the show is to look at that context. So if we laid all of that out, right? Their leadership in the district, constituent services, their voice on local issues, you know, are they co-sponsor on legislation? Did they bring resources back to the community, to the district? What are their voice on the important issues of the day, as well as the landscape? What grade then would you give the people who represent you? And then it's not enough to just keep that, that grade to yourself and then take it in the voting booth by yourself. I think that is a perfect opportunity for you to actually communicate with the legislator and tell them why you're giving them that grade, whether the grade is good or bad, right? So I'm going to send my notes to Chuck Schumer and his staff and be like, here's the grade that I'm going to give you and here's what I'm considering given your election at this time, right? The grade may be a C, it may be a B, and then I'm going to say, this is why I'm doing it. Because you did this, thank you very much, right? Because just as important as it is to contact our representatives and for things that you don't want or that you're angry about, we should also tell them what you're happy about, right? Um, It gives them the information and the fuel necessary as they are representing you. So thank you for bringing this to the floor. Thank you for your advocacy and your role on this. I need you to do better here. (laughs) I need you to do this here. This is all what I'm considering in reelecting you. You know, remember, we are the bosses. The constituents are the bosses. So you're basically giving your year in review, if you will, your notes of improvement. If I'm going to reelect you, this is what I need you to do. Or you can say, this is why I'm choosing a different candidate because of these issues that you consistently don't address. Right. This person is not entitled to this position. The position belongs to us as constituents as the community and it is something that we are sending this person to represent us it does not belong to them the seat does not belong to them right and so we have to wrestle back control of yes thank you go represent this and then when you no longer serve it's just like this is great not to say we're discarding people and throwing them in the trash maybe they can go on and do something else and it's time to send somebody else new but you need to communicate that we need to be participants This is how it's set up until we get a better system to get greater representation. But I do encourage you for this 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 time, this this summertime, if you will, to take a moment. You can either do it with your family, do it with your community, your building association or something and come together and determine are the people who representing you representing you in the best light. So grade your legislators and then communicate with them. Send them, whether via Twitter, via Facebook, an email to their office or anything, or just carry it in your pocket for when you see them at the supermarket, handing out flyers and everything. And be like, oh, by the way, here is the grade I give you. And this is what I'm considering doing, either reelecting you or not reelecting you or sending you where to this, this next position, because this is how I feel you have represented me or haven't represented me. And so this is the time to do that before we get to November. This is the time to communicate and have dialogue with those who represent you. So when we come back, (laughs) I'm going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to have Insay in Georgia. I love Insay. She's been on the show before, but she's coming back on the show to have a conversation with us about how Georgia at this current moment is showing up and organizing in order to do what we just talked about. So she heads up New Georgia Project, which is a voter support and legal action nonprofit. She's been on the show before. Those of you who are new, you are in for a great conversation. I'm also going to ask her what she thinks about grading her legislators and the legislators who represent communities in Georgia. So we'll be right back with more Sunday Civics and NSA will be joining us when we come back. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is Woo! The teacher? Welcome back to 
to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher. And I need you to keep your workbooks out. Keep your, keep out your notes. We talked about how we're going to grade those who represent us from Congress all down. Anybody who is appearing on your ballot for a primary or for the general election, I want you to communicate to them and send them a grade and let them know in advance if you will be supporting their reelection or their election from that standpoint. But I'm bringing somebody to the front of the class who's no stranger to Sunday Civics. She's been with us before. She's from the great state of Georgia. It is Insay from the New Georgia Project and the New Georgia Project Action Fund. Hey, Insay. Hi, Eljoy. It's so good to see you. You too. So you heard about me telling people to grade people. Yes. What do you think about grading your representatives, whether from Congress all the way down? I think it is brilliant. I mean, we already do it in some ways, right? When you are posting on social media, when you are in the voting booth, you are making a values uh, judgment and assessment of whether or not this person has done a good job or whether or not you're willing to give them a chance. I talk often about the power of the vote as a tool, uh, a tool that we can use to build the world that we want to live in. Um, and I think that, you know, we should uh, like honor it, value it, think that it's important, but really you are hiring and firing people who go to your state capitol or who go to Washington, D.C. to do the work, to do your work, work on behalf of you, your family, your community. So are they doing a good job or not? So I'm here for the grades. And let me tell you, a lot of people are going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are going to fail, right? I mean, because, you know, as you know, when we are actively engaged, particularly in an election year, we get the response back from people in our community often, not New Georgia Project, because y'all engaged all the time, right? But for a lot of people, they get, well, people only talk to me and engage with me when it's an election season. Where were you when I needed X? Where were you when our community needed Y? And, you know, we are a big proponent on this show that we need to communicate with those who represent you all the time, right? Like, how do they know what your views, what your values are if you if you don't have this ongoing communication. And we know the people who get the most from this system are the ones who communicate the most <laughs> with the system. And it's an undue burden really to individuals and you know communities who are suffering, right? We do want elected officials to, you know, really speak to the constituents. But for those of us who have the ability, right, to be able to talk about some of the things, whether it's how's your office in constituent services, how has your office been speaking to the moment and to the issues that our community are impacting. So I, I think it's a way to really empower people to think differently about elected officials coming to them and asking for their vote. And it's another tool in the toolbox besides voting. Now, when New Georgia Project is out and about and engaged and, you know, through the app and things of that nature, part of it is empowering people to wrestle control, right, right. of the process and not just be a pawn, you know, right. in somebody else's game. Talk a bit about what New Georgia Project is doing leading up to the midterms here, but particularly what you've been doing, you know, yeah. um, before the election, you know, came into view. Yeah, I think that we are like laser focused on winning uh, for Georgians, winning for Georgia families, uh, winning for Black folks and, and Latinos and Asian Americans, women, femmes, young people, like actual wins that people recognize as wins. Um, and to that service, we, uh, or, you know, to that end, we subscribe to the gospel choir theory of organizing. And when you think about groups like the Georgia Mass Choir, they can hold a note for so long so powerfully and beautifully because each individual vocalist is doing their part. They're doing their part. They're holding their note. They're singing their song. Um, and when an individual vocalist needs to drop out because of competing professional or personal obligations, the note continues. This do I have choir rehearsal. And so thinking about joining the New Georgia Project or finding a political home 
I think it's super important um, that yes, while you are exercising your power as an individual, knowing that there are people who share your values, who care about the same issues that you care about, or who are, you know, you find yourself in a community of interest with um, has been really important. And so that's what the New Georgia Project has tried to be uh, across the state of Georgia. We have 18 offices across the state, a staff of about 140 full-time staff. Um, and when it is election season, um, we go between like 400 to 1,100 part-time canvassers um, for the election season. And so just working to build power. We've gotten, uh, there were 1,600 municipal elections in 2021. So after we helped elect Warnock and Ossoff at, to the United States Senate in January, that November, we got like 30 Black mayors elected in small towns all across the state of Georgia. Um, Warner Robins, Georgia, first African-American mayor, first uh, Black woman mayor uh, in her early, late 20s, early 30s. Um, and so... We are trying to build power, contest for power. And we see elections as opportunities to test our power and to flex our power. But the reason that you see us continue to go year round, the reason you continue to see us go so hard is because there are real things that we want to win for our families. I don't think that people know your audience I don't think your audience knows that the minimum wage in Georgia is five dollars and fifteen cents an hour. And our elected leaders currently are so unaccountable to Georgians, they do not care what we are pissed off about and they have to go. And so having that conversation with Georgians, understanding that wages and employment are still at the top of the list, that people care deeply about that, and then doing the work of framing how each individual race that they're eligible to vote in is going to be a part of bringing about the change that they want to see is what we do. We lean into culture and culture organizing. Why? Because we want to change the culture of elections. We want to change the culture of democratic participation. Um, at the core of everything that we do is a very bold, very aggressive research agenda. So just because you are Black doesn't make you an expert in Black politics. Just because you're a young person doesn't make you an expert in youth politics. And so really studying to show ourselves approved uh, is also how we've done what we do up to this point. And then having high quality conversations with folks over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, that really goes to, you know, I said in the beginning, like my approach to in electoral politics and organizing overall starts with education. Mm -hmm. Right. So I educate, which I believe leads to empowerment. Right. Then you can talk about registration. <laughs> like and all that kind of stuff, right? Because people want to go straight to registration and like registering people. And we've all done the bid on the street trying to register people. And, you know, we've all done it or whatever. And we know that, you know, there are more effective ways to do it when you educate and empower people and give them the information and the tools on how this leads to addressing some of the issues. You have a better engagement, a better rate of return of people wanting to participate in the process once you've educated and empowered them in that process. And then after that, you can like you still have to continue to engage. Right. Right. <laughs> like you right. you can't like do the drop off. It's just like, yes, I've empowered you. And like, here's a registration form. And like, see you in two years in election. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. how you continue to get the continue to get the drop off. And just to get partisan for a little bit, because I don't think the current party and I'm saying party TM party in terms of national Democrats, party TM, even in some state Democratic parties don't are not getting that organizing and continuing to stay engaged piece, right. right? I feel like they're spending so much time, oh, the new progressives, oh, you know, this and the fascists of the, you know, the right and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, but wait a minute, like what happened to the basics of actually organizing and building yep. an app a political apparatus that empowers people, but also gets, you know, we're not building the apparatus for your personal achievement. Right. We're building the apparatus so that the collective whole can get the issues that they need addressed and get the, you know, get the things that they need. 
Like, talk to me. I mean, come on. Listen, I was like, since you opened the door, let's (laughs) talk about partisanship um, for a second and talk about the Democratic Party and how, I mean, essentially, we were fortunate enough to have a dynamic, charismatic, once in a generation type of leader in Barack Obama. But the fault, the downside of that was that under the Obama for America tier were state and county parties that were allowed to completely atrophy um, during before, but definitely during the eight years of the Obama administration and subsequent to that. I think there's been an effort to try to build it. But I think one, that that is one of the challenges is that having, we're so used to having a dynamic messianic kind of character, like a superhero character, the guy you want to have a beer with, uh, the cult of personality that we do not invest in or believe in organizing um, and long-term base building and power building. So number one. Number two, I think that it is the question of transactional politics versus transformational politics. And so registering people to vote, getting people out year after year or cycle after cycle, um, grand opening, grand closing is a very transactional way to approach it. And if you have enough money and enough resources, you don't have to build power. You don't have to dig in. You don't have to build relationships. But unfortunately, um, it is the conservatives that have more money than uh, God. Uh, And it's really, really important uh, that as we're thinking about a transformational politics where people who, again, see themselves as a part of a larger movement, that takes time. And I think the third thing is that the, the current version of the Democratic Party is a really big tent. And the people who are leading and making decisions are super uncomfortable, like low key, they're kind of defenders of the status quo. And so growing the party, there is a guy named Bill Lucy from AFSCME, um, labor leader, longtime labor leader, mentor of mine, who would say that the man who is the president of a 100 member union local doesn't want to go out and organize 200 people uh, because when they currently have control over uh, they they know how to control the 100 but bringing new people in threatens their their power, threatens the fiefdom Um, and so unaccountable leaders don't want to grow their base, they don't want to grow their ranks and so I think that we have some of that uh, in existing leadership and and which is also why uh, they get uncomfortable when we start talking about policy proposals that we know the people actually want Uh, and but they are uncomfortable they're difficult conversations but they are the right thing to do and they're actually animating and motivating and if you actually ask people about it like i don't think that reparations is a losing issue right um, girl it is not it, we it's close not. <laughs> we, i mean it's we not. just had a conversation with ron daniels about that right like about right. the you know the changing politics and it led me to something i think you said this in an interview yeah, a couple of years ago or something you say all the time and talking about the changing dynamics in georgia the changing population that it's going to be one of those states where people of color the global majority will be the majority in a state in that state mm-hmm. right and that's people feel uncomfortable with that right and 2025 that's not too far away. No, it's not. <laughs> We're going to blink and it's going to be here. 100%. Right. And so if you're talking about, you know, more people in a state like that, that are the majority, then why won't we, why don't we have a leaders that reflect that B to ensure that the issues and concerns that they have are addressed. I mean, I did not know that the minimum wage in Georgia was $5. Like those kind of economic issues are the reason why I'm like, you know, federal government needs to set minimum wage band and like let states, you you still have to stay within that band. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like, right. you know, I sometimes I get the argument of some economists just like, oh, if you go too high in certain states, blah, blah, I get it. But it can't fall below. It can't be no five dollars. It can't. It can't. And that is what happens like this sort of federalism, states rights, uh, that we argument that's going to be circulated when Roe versus Wade goes down at the end of the summer is the idea that we can set up a state by state network and each state should be allowed to set their own minimum wage, determine whether or not what kind of health care people can have access to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It doesn't work. 
it, it upholds the status quo. Um, and it is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. I would say this, um, but that's also why I am bullish about what turnout is going to look like in Georgia this November, because yes, obviously there's the inspirational story about leader Abrams and like the potential for a rematch, like the entire world watched the governor's seat be stolen um, in front of our very eyes and the people who were responsible for stealing it never held accountable. And because they were not elected by uh, the will of the majority, because they are not right for the job, like thousands of Georgians have died unnecessarily as a result of it, from our failure to expand Medicaid to how hard we were hit during COVID, particularly Black folks, um, that Georgians, one, there's nothing that focuses the mind like the credible threat of death. And we have been through a very difficult time and Georgians are looking for a leader uh, that can get us out of this mess and who doesn't lie and stumble and stutter every time they get on television. Um, I think, again, there are real things that we are trying to win for ourselves and our families uh, that people can touch, that they can put in their pockets, that they can put on a plate, that they can take to the bank. Um, and so there's a real fight for that. Um, and then I think three, um, because of the American Rescue Plan, 80% of American households got some sort of economic relief uh, during uh, at the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021. Uh, and that's real power. And Georgia voters know that they did that. Uh, when uh, uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed, uh, there was a lot of chatter in Georgia groups about like feeling like they were a part of making this our reality. And I think that that's really powerful messaging that we're going to continue to lean into. And then student loan debt cancellation. These young folks is not playing with, with Joseph Robinette and Kamala Harris. They're not. They want, uh, they see student loan debt cancellation as a racial, gender, and economic justice issue. And they're coming for what was promised to them. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of things that a mature electorate is going to show up for on November 8th um, looking for uh, in their choices of who they send back to Congress. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher. Listen, I love how you called President Biden's whole... Because <laughs> I can imagine people showing up to... To the White House, the memes, like, <laughs> the memes. Let me let me speak to Joe because you know what he had said during the prime. He said, "This is what you said." I'm not saying nothing to nobody in in future. Like this, is what you said. I went back to my timeline <laughs> and saw you in October of 2020, and you said, "Right, screenshots and everything." This is what I'm saying. Group chat culture. <laughs> is organizing, is doing some of the best organizing of young voters, young people that I've ever seen. And again, they're not letting up. I think that there are a lot of people who told us that the things that we're asking for are unreasonable. Uh, when we told the president and vice president that maybe they shouldn't come to Atlanta uh, in January, right before the vote to end the filibuster, that maybe they should go to West Virginia or Arizona, or maybe they should stay in Washington, D.C. and whip votes. That coming to Morehouse College in January to talk to Georgia voters about the need to end the filibuster feels like a waste of time and energy um, if you are actually trying to win. And people told us that we were disrespectful. We didn't understand how government works. The, 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 the pace of progress takes time. That we'll never get student loan debt cancellations, et cetera. And I just, I'm encouraged by these Gen Z and millennial, uh, younger millennials from folks that we're organizing with who know that America can be different and they're fighting for it. Listen, you know why I, I agree with that? And while even my inner auntie sometimes be like, oh, Jesus, Lord, y'all just go. <laughs> y'all just, you know, my inner auntie does come out sometimes. I then have to remind myself, as I said at the top of the show, that the people who engage and push and are constantly in people's faces, on their phones, you know, in their inboxes and things of that nature, get what they want. And when I empower people with the knowledge that, you know, corporations get bailouts all the time, right? It is, and it like, they feel no shame of saying, 
oh, if we don't get bailed out, like we're going to fall. And like, there are all of these dominoes that are going to fall. Like they have the whole argument, you know, laid out from that standpoint. But they feel zero shame of asking for it. So why would I feel uncomfortable about asking for or demanding the erasure of student loan debt and what it will mean. And there is an economic argument for it. There is a moral argument for it. There's also many different arguments. And yes, we have to get to the point where we address why college is that expensive as hell in the first place. But in the meantime, yeah, cancel this debt, right? So anytime my inner auntie rolls up where language is being used that I'd be like, ooh, or right. you know something like that. I have right. to remind myself, you know, that as you empower people, you may not agree with everybody's methods or strategies or things like that, but at the heart of it, people being able to communicate and participate in a process to demand what they want when other corporate interests are only demanding what like 12 people want. Right. And also we are not served by demanding or asking for what we think is politically expedient. That that's what the Bible says, that it, I'll spit you out your, my mouth if you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. People don't respect it. People do respect a principled struggle, though. And we make demands. We develop messaging. We build campaigns around principles, around the things that we want to win for ourselves and for our families. And there are times where taking a principled stand has meant that we've had to publicly disagree with friends. Um, Listen, as you know, Senator Warnock was the chair of the New Georgia Project and a very close friend of mine. I am not with his Title 42 position at all. And he has heard from me and will continue to hear from me. And I don't think that that loses, I don't think that we lose anything in our relationship. If anything, I hope that he respects that he can get the smoke too. <laughs> and you that- gotta, I, listen, I gotta do the same thing for Alexis here. You're gonna be like, I thought you was my friend. I was like, yeah, that only gets you a heads up, boo. Like that don't get- <laughs> Right. And what did you think that, did you think that this was rhetoric? Did you, no. did you think that I came out here, uh, in hard bottoms and in a suit to, to to pontificate and talk to the people and then go home and then might want to get the things that we actually talk about. No, like that that politics doesn't serve us. And my thing is, if you're going to ask for the things that seem politically expedient, that requires political capital too. So why expend political capital on the thing that you don't really want, right? Why not go all in? for what vision you have for yourself, the kind of America that you want to live in, that we want to fight for. And then like, we'll figure out how to negotiate and arrive at a compromise. But I'm not going to be negotiating against ourselves. Yeah. But I look like... Not, I mean, and not only that, like, you know, as you mentioned, being able to demand and give full voice with full chest, you know, standing flat footed in terms of what you want. I hired you as the representative. So you go figure out how to do it. So when people were saying to me that it was unrealistic on the field, but I was like, first of all, President Biden told me that he knew how to deal with the Republicans and like all these people. That's what he said. That was his pitch as to the reason why we should have picked him over somebody else, that he knows how to deal with them. He friends with them and all that kind of stuff. Okay, you friends with them and know how to deal with them. So I'm going to need you to go figure out the strategy. Come on. I'm going to need you at least to show me, to demonstrate to me that you are doing a hundred and thousand percent of everything you could possibly do, including going into West Virginia and other people's back. Like, I need you to put on a show, do, do, at least do a show. Right. And show me that you are trying to do what, you know, what you promised and what you said to do. Or how about you not put on a show, right? Because here's the thing, the amount of time and energy that it takes you to get dressed, to get the face beat, to get sound and audio together just to perform, you might as well do the real thing, right? And go out in a blaze of glory, right? And not come to Atlanta and visit the King Memorial and go to his uh, revered alma mater to lecture Black folks and to perform thank yous when we're in a fight for the filibuster. You trying to win or not? Well, well, Insay, let me ask you this. Is it also because people are also still fearful of losing, right? Because you may be able to do it and get it all out, but it's going to cost you. Mm. 
you know, the your, way. Your, your position, right? We see that even when ACA was done where people, you know, people got wiped out and folks were like, look, I'm fine. Like, I, I, I'm sure I'll find a job. I've been a congressperson. Like, you know, I'll, I'll find a job at a law firm or do, you know, something, whatever. But this was the right thing to do. This vote was the right thing to do. Like defending this was the right thing to do. Do you feel like people are just like, well, if I do that, yeah, millions of people will get this, will be able to empower whatever, but I'll lose my job. I mean, I believe in a principled struggle, right? A, I don't believe that you are entitled to any job or any position that as an elected official, you are signing up to be a servant. Uh, to do the will of the people. And so that is not a permanent position. It's not a lifetime appointment. Um, so I, I, listen, there are elections have consequences. One, but here's the other thing. The only pushback that I will offer to that is I lived in Ohio one where Steve Treehouse was a blue dog, moderate Democrat, damn near light skin Republican, like diet Republican. Um, who we had to leverage. I'm talking about blowing him up every day for months to get him to vote for the Affordable Care Act. And he lost in the next election. But we in no way are factoring in gerrymandering and extreme gerrymandering and the impact that the moderate Dems was going to lose anyway in the midterms after electing a Black, America's first Black American, like America's first Black president. Um, so these were, Swing districts uh, where moderate Dems who were out of step and didn't support their president, um, who didn't offer the full-throated support of their president um, and tried to align themselves with the right and thinking that that was going to let them hold on to their seat. Let me tell you, I live in Georgia. I was raised here. Republicans like the real thing. I drink Diet Coke because I have goals that I'm trying to accomplish. But I know that Coke tastes better. <laughs> Period. Like, I know this, right? And so do Republican voters, right? So they don't want you, moderate Democrat. You still got a D behind your name. Why are you bending over backwards and trying to capitulate um, to ingrace yourself to a base that will never accept you? Well, you uh, know, me and you shared that thing. I was just like, why do we keep showing? Why, why do you keep, like thinking that you can, you know, put on more baby oil and do a new trick around the pole to thinking that some voters go like, why, why, why are you on the pole? Like, get off, get off the pole. They done already told you to stay behind. They ain't coming in. They're not giving you no dollars, no quarters. They're not swiping. They're not doing nothing. They ain't even buying drinks. They not even type. in the club. You, know <laughs> like, why you keep inviting them there. <laughs> Listen, you're not my type. I'm in my phone until the next dancer comes on. <laughs> you know, uh, to, to your point, we here in New York in, you know, not in New York City, but in Nassau, Suffolk counties experienced the same thing in the last election cycle, where in which we had the big push in the summer and Dem Republicans were pushing the, you know, these candidates are, you know, anti-police kind of thing. And they tried to do the moderate situation you know, and all that kind of stuff. And they all lost. And I was like, well, either you double down and say, I believe in protecting people's lives. And those are the things that the, sort of the back, back down politics people don't see on a day-to-day -day basis that have an effect on what's happening. And then the media takes the narrative of us not being engaged not being motivated to turn out and things of that nature when you have elected officials who are, as you mentioned, don't have, are not saying it with their chest, right? They're trying to appeal to other voters during that time. Listen, as I've said before, uh, and let me not take credit for it. Revelations 3, 15 and 16 existed long before I did. Pick a side. Uh, I feel like people have put their jerseys on. I don't think that there are that many more persuadable voters that exist. We are in a time of extreme polarization. Um, and so 
I think that, you know, if I am to take any lesson from the GOP is that they super serve their base. Um, I mean, and and so that is why like a Trump run again is likely because they don't have the courage uh, to move away from their base and they have identified their base um, as uh, sort of these Americans, white Americans, white Americans who espouse a particular type of politics uh, that's rooted deeply in white supremacy and like they're okay with it that even if they themselves don't identify as white supremacists or white supremacist sympathizers uh, that they are they don't find it noxious they have room for it in their po- their politics in their platform and their governing campaigns um, that are, again are designed to super serve their base and I get that the Dems are it is much more challenging given the ideological and the demographic um, diversity uh, in the party. But again, you're not going to win elections by pretending to be moderate, by standing in the middle of the road and by trying to not be offensive. Not when they broke into the Capitol on January 6th with a failed murder plot to kill the vice president of the United States. Not when they brought their own bags of poop to the Capitol to smear on the walls and not when they had identified 535 alternative electors because they wanted to invalidate the electoral college vote. This ain't the time for what about both sides? Thanks so much, Insay. And, you know, what should people, if they're in Georgia, what should they be doing to connect with New Georgia Project or for those of us who want to continue to support the work on the ground, what should they do? Yeah, um, uh, we have offices in 18 uh, cities across the state of Georgia. Uh, Listen, and I'm a church girl, so we need your time, your talent, or your treasure. Uh, That I think that democracy is our candidate this year. Democracy is absolutely on the ballot. Um, Student loan debt forgiveness is on the ballot. Uh, Reproductive rights are on the ballot. Bodily autonomy is on the ballot. And so, uh, you know, we have our primaries in May, at the end of May. Um, and then there's a November 8th election. Uh, we've got our video game that just hit the Apple stores and the Google Play stores. So download our video game. Give us money. Um, uh, come volunteer. Follow us on social media. We're New Georgia Project on all platforms. Uh, and yes, uh, I would love it, love it, love it, love it, love it to have you join our efforts so that we can fight for the country that we deserve. Well, and say. And say thank you so very much for taking the time to join us as you all continue the great work on the ground and building that apparatus that we talked about that needs to be built in, you know, every state that people of color, the global majority, as Karen Hunter calls us, that I've I've started to adopt the global majority and making sure that our voices, that our issues are all on the table and we get to determine how we address them, how we spend the money, (laughs) you know, and what our society needs to look like. So thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. (laughs) 